the question was about the metta phrases coming spontaneously to mind at different times of the day and whether to go with that or go um, back to the vipassana. It's fine to go with that for a little while. You know, if this is a um, spontaneous arising, um, see where it takes you. You know, don't try to prolong it, however, through effort. You know, after some time you can let it go and then, and then come back to the Vipassana, except for those times when you are dedicating that period to metta, you know, when, when the goal is the continuity of the mind dwelling in the phrases. Yeah, I would suggest actually devoting one period to compassion. You know, if the metta practice is the base because it both um, points out the expansive nature of the mind, which can be boundless in its generation of that feeling, you know, not seeking to exclude anybody, but have that kind of infinite radiance of the feeling. And it also... Um, allows us to learn that craft, you know, having the mind dwell in, in the phrases of generating a sincerity, not pushing or demanding a feeling, you know, all of the ways that, that the metta works. The compassion is a slightly different feeling, and it's subtle. You know, it's, it's not that easy to describe in words. Many times when I was in Burma doing the intensive Brahma Vihara practices and I first switched from metta to compassion, I would have interviews with Upandita and he would say, what's going on? And I would describe it and he would say, well, that sounds just like metta. What's the difference? And I could never say, <laughs> you know, and it didn't seem different to me for some time. But after that period, as I continued to do it, I began to feel the differences, you know, that it was a somewhat different feeling. Um, so I would suggest that you either replace that one sitting with compassion instead of doing the metta, or do the metta and then do another period of doing compassion so that you begin to discern for yourself, you know, what differences there might be and, and to get a sense of proficiency in both. With all of these practices, what we really hope for by the end of the retreat is that you'll have some sense of the technique and confidence in using the technique so that you can then go on afterwards and use them as seems appropriate to you. You know, and so as we move through each one and each phase of each one, it's an effort to just try to paint the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. If you want to do it during walking, then you don't need to pay particular attention to the body movement. You can walk at any speed, whatever feels comfortable or easiest for you. Um, you can either direct the feeling of metta or compassion towards the particular person that you have chosen, the benefactor or friend or whatever, or you can direct the feeling towards yourself or those around you. What I've 
told um, some people in interviews is that my favorite way of doing it, which is just something to experiment with, in walking is to direct the metta or the compassion to myself and then towards anyone who comes by because that is so random and so out of control. It may be a person I like deeply. It may be a person I'm afraid of. It may be a bird. It may be an animal. It may be a bug if I'm outside, hopefully not inside. <laughs> and, you know, there's just a tremendous range of possibility of sentient beings that can appear in doing that. And so um, it's a lot of fun, and it's also a great preparation for practicing it in daily life. I'm just moving along. Eating, it's the same thing. You know, you don't have to be meticulously mindful of the movements, you know, but rather settle on a way of generating the phrases that seems easiest. And maybe towards yourself and those around, maybe towards a particular being in mind. Whatever. Yeah. Also the question of what is that practice? Um that in some way can be held in the light of the metta and gently dropped then and with a return to the phrases then that's the first approach you know it's not saying those feelings are bad or wrong or, or that they shouldn't come up they will inevitably come up in the course of the practice but in a way it's almost like seeing the transparency of them that they are another conditioned arising, that they're not solid, they're not substantial, um, they're born out of conditions, they come and go. And so if you can gently drop them, lovingly, you know, and return to the phrases, that's the first approach. Sometimes one can't, you know, those feelings come up with such a punch and we feel so drawn into them that the idea of gently letting go and <laughs> returning to the phrases is just ludicrous. You know, it's not going to happen. In which case, it's really time to pick up the light of awareness and, and try to be aware of the feelings, you know, to see them as much as possible without adding to them a conceptual overlay. This is true. This isn't true. You know, this means that I whatever, you know, without creating a self around it, to feel them, to feel the pain of them, you know, if possible, to see the impermanent nature in that moment, you know, and noting is a very good tool for that. I guess I was concerned about mixing the two. Mm -hmm. still, you know. Yeah. Um, also, just uh, in addition, the, it feels like when um, one is very involved in, in the phrases, it can become almost trance-like, and in fact, the concentration can bleed, and you know you're sort of in a trance. How can you pull yourself back uh, mm -hmm. after noticing that? Is there a way to avoid it? With the um, metta, it's very similar to concentrating on the breath in a way of um, seeking it or choosing it as a singular focus, which isn't particularly Vipassana practice, but is more concentration practice. And the, the two elements of mind that are basic to that process are first what we call right aim, you know, to, to have a sense of, in a way, framing just this moment 
just this one breath, just this one phrase. And the other is what's called sustaining, you know, to actually connect with that experience of the moment. In the sustaining, it's important to have just the right amount of energy. If there's too little energy, then it's like we're too far back. But if there's too much energy, it's like we're grabbing whatever it is, you know, and and it's like a stranglehold in an experience, which doesn't work either. So the, the things we always look for are, first, the quality of aim. Are you concerned with just this one phrase, or are you kind of getting ready to send metta forevermore, you know, even just throughout the rest of the sitting? The practice gets most empowered when there's that appropriate sense of aim, just this one phrase, just this one moment. And then the quality of energy is very important. You know, is there too little? Are you too far back in a way? Are you disinterested? Are you disconnected? Or is there too much? You know, is it too forceful? Is it, is it too effortful? And you, so you play with those. And that's how the whole practice unfolds. Uh-huh. When I was doing uh, the compassion meditation, I used I used the phrase. It's one phrase, more or less. Um, May you be free of your pain and sorrow. You know, and uh, other people say, May you be free of your pain and suffering. Somehow, the rhythm of pain and sorrow, you know, was better for me, and so I used that. Sometimes people feel um, they don't like using that phrase. You know, that the reality is that no matter how much we wish somebody to be free of their pain and sorrow, they're going to have pain and sorrow. And so some people use a phrase, something like, I feel moved by your pain and sorrow, or I care about your pain and sorrow, suffering, whatever. I think there is an advantage in formalizing it, although you don't need to neglect or ignore those periods when you know the feeling is is quite clear, because in all of these practices, um, as practices, they're guaranteed to demand a lot of patience over a period of time, because sometimes the feeling is there and sometimes the feeling is not there, and so if you have the facility of having the mind rest in the phrases, which is not just a mechanical um, overlay, but it's really forming the intention in the mind. You know, may you be free of your pain and suffering. It's, it's aligning ourselves with that value. Then, even when the feeling is not there, we are, in a sense, creating the karmic seed or planting the karmic seed. Know, of that, and so it's just a little tricky to be exclusively bound to the feeling. Well, yeah. Is it appropriate to 
Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah, it's fine. on my own experience of logging in countless hours of doing metta with no feeling <laughs> uh, at different times <laughs> that something is happening anyway you know um, and that the fact that there is no feeling is not a sign necessarily that you need to do something else um, it's important to have a sense of being in touch with the meaning of the phrases you know you're not just saying them in a completely rote way, but there's a, an element of some sincerity or understanding with saying them because you know what they mean. But the feeling just may not be there, and that's okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's how it all evolves. You know, but it needs to be gentle, too. You know, if something comes up that is so powerful, like a resistance or uh, a different kind of feeling, then, you know, it's better to open to that and be with it for a while and kind of come to see it, you know, through awareness and then go back to saying the phrases rather than feeling you have to bulldoze your way through, you know, something that's very intense. Okay, it's time to walk. The question, is, <clears throat> the question is how to get the most out of your meditation when you're tired. You can't get much out of your meditation when you're tired. I guess, I mean, we've talked a lot about sleepiness and different kinds of sleepiness and bringing energy into balance with concentration. So I won't repeat all that. I'll just tell a story. When I went to Burma to practice, I went for three reasons. To practice intensively for as long as I wanted, meaning to just, to just practice until I had had enough. Uh, to live as a monk and to live in a, uh, a Bud, uh, Buddhist country. But even though I went with the intention to practice as long as I wanted to, after about four months, I thought I'd had enough, <laughs> but I knew I really didn't have enough. And I went through a period of time of about two weeks, maybe, of every day just, it was a slog. It was just, I wasn't, I thought I just, I didn't have any reason to be, I just didn't want to be there. And it was a real, um, it was hot season. Sayadaw had left to go to America, and I had a different teacher. Uh, I had just become a monk, and that was 
uh, another whole world of experience. And I just, I didn't want to practice anymore. And that transition or that, that state of mind made it impossible to get much out of practice. And I was just tired and And then I think I reflected or, you know, discursively thought about uh, why I had come, why I had gone there in the first place. And I realized that even though I was tired, I was bored, I was just fed up with practice, um, I wasn't done yet. And when I stepped back from the immediacy of today, eh, I don't like the meal, it's too hot. And eh, When I stepped back from the immediacy of the day and looked at my whole life, after a couple of weeks, it really turned a corner. And I just said, I'm here to practice. I don't care if I'm tired. And at that time, I took a vow for myself, just for myself, that when I woke up, I would get up. And I wouldn't look at the watch, the clock. And, of course, we started out at a, a maximum of four hours in this monastery. And, you know, anything more than four hours was excess. Well, sometimes it is not enough. But I took this vow to myself, wake up, get up. And I was in the habit then of, after the talk in the evening, which was seven to eight, I'd maybe walk for a half hour and I'd go to bed. So I was in bed by nine o'clock, 9.30 maybe. And I would set my alarm for four hours, but I had also taken his vow, wake up, get up. And other than if I just had to pee, if I knew it was just full bladder, I, I would just get up, pee, and go back to bed. But it happened that I often would go to bed, sleep for an hour or two, and wake up. And I had this vow that I'd get up. <laughs> and so I just did. I just said, all right, I'm awake. It's not just to pee. I've got to get up. And it just turned my whole practice around. I'm not suggesting you take the vow or do that for yourself, but it just put practice in a whole different perspective. It wasn't to feel good. It wasn't even to get something. It wasn't even to enjoy or anything. It was just to do. And that was just, you just do it, that, that's all. You don't have to like it, you don't have to, anything. You don't even have to understand it. You just do it. You just note whatever's happening. And, I mean, that's, this is the severe model. This is the, this is the arouse your energy at, to the exclusion of everything else, and you just persevere. And there were times I'd be up by 11 o'clock at night for the rest of the day. And, I mean, for the rest of that day and the next one. 
And there were times, there were a lot of times actually, by three in the morning, we didn't eat till 5.30, first meal. By three in the morning, I was exhausted for not eating, tired. And when I get tired and hungry, my body is just an impossible place to live. It's just so uncomfortable. And I would do long walking periods where I would have to just shake my head and really prop my eyes open to take the next step. The next step, not the next walking period, the next step. And often had to hang on to the railing so I wouldn't fall over, fall asleep. Now you might wonder, what? <laughs> Give me a break. You know, that's okay. That if that's where you're at, that's fine. But there's another way to do practice, and I'm just holding out a possibility. And for months, I did that. And for a few years, it was just an hour or two of sleep a night. You just you find out that what you think you are capable of is so far less than what you are actually capable of that you just don't believe yourself anymore. You just don't believe your limits, what you think you can or can't do. Forget it. It's not true. Whatever you think is possible, you can do far, far, far more than that. The power of the mind is unbelievable. Don't be satisfied with anything less than challenging yourself. You've got the opportunity. Like the woman said last night in the letter that I read, I thought the dukkha was over and, you know, I went back home and I forgot and uh, life caught up with her again. Look, this retreat's going to be over real soon. Maybe not soon enough for some of you, but too soon for a lot of you. And you might not notice it until about a week after you've left. And then you'll say, what did I do that last six weeks? Cruise control. Automatic pilot. Comfortable samadhi. It's okay. This is, Michelle's rap is, it's okay. Hey. Get out, take it easy. Go for a walk. It's okay. She's the good guy, I'm the good one, good girl, and the bad guy. You know, challenge yourself. Accept your own challenge. All right, enough of that one. Somebody asked me a question, I can give a real soft, gooey answer. <laughs> okay, Mom. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the Michelle side. I actually asked about what's happening for me <clears throat> is to really allow myself to just be, to truly not strive. Hmm. And it's a shock to my system. Yeah. It's like I see that I want to make something happen and there's no stress. It's scary. And so what I'm saying is I'm finding that 
breaking through on the other side is is remarkable. Right. And I'm moving into that, right. you know, that right. lovingness rather than like <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. not to I mean what you're saying is wonderful and I yeah. also know that part and I agree with you. Mm. But I've never just allowed that. Yeah. Often I think what you're speaking about is we have, I mean, the other side of, or what, what I was just talking about can sometimes slip into is having an agenda. It's like, I'm going to do, I'm going to get, I'm going to set all these things. I'm going to only sleep four hours, and I'm going to sit every sit, I'm going to sit for two hours every time. And that's not what I'm saying. And to let go of agendas and just be also takes a lot of energy. And it takes a lot of love and a lot of patience and a lot of understanding that being is happening anyway. Can I be with it? Can I be aware of the being that's happening? Yeah, it's, yep. I also did that practice too. spoken to this woman about was if you set yourself a challenge, a goal, or an agenda, it's a definite setup for disappointment because you're going to end up judging yourself. And the times when you do succeed in sitting two hours, in getting up after four, or whatever, whatever, the times you do succeed, you're going to, you're going to fly for a while with a little bit of pride and a little bit of sense of accomplishment and a little bit of Hey, I'm pretty good. And the only place to go from that <laughs> is the other side of judgment. And so when you set yourself up a challenge, you're bound to be disappointed. You're bound to end up judging yourself and be disappointed. There's no way around it. So rather than setting it, setting goals as challenges in practice, when the goal is understanding, you never fail. You can't not get something out of anything, if that's your understanding, if that's your focus, is to understand what is going on. Then you don't put yourself on that yo-yo of I'm doing good, I'm not, I'm doing good, I'm not, I'm doing good. You know, forget judging your practice. It's just a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Steve, you sort of gave a, a whipside. 
Hmm. I think they almost touched on it. There's a carrot side too. If you can get some investigation or yeah. a lot of curiosity, yeah. that really moves things along, really pulls you along. Yeah. Can you talk a little about that or what sort of objects yeah. are I, I think that investigation, that curiosity, is a lot like this, not considering practice a challenge, but considering it an invitation. What's going on? Just to look. We have, we've all lived 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And every day, we sleep, we get tired, we go to the toilet, we get bored, we get hungry, and we eat and we feel full. And you know what? For the most part, we couldn't describe any one of those experiences very carefully. Because we've never really paid attention to what hunger is. What does hunger actually feel like? What, 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 what is it? What is sleepiness, really? Write a book, write a chapter on your experience of sleepiness. You might get a paragraph, and that's it. We don't know anything. What's hunger really feel like? Where is it in the body? What images come to mind when you're really hungry? We have this body, we have this mind, and we don't, we don't even know it. And so when you, when you get that sense of, I don't have a clue as to what's going on, and then there's the whole world of experience invites you to discover what's going on. And that can be very uh, stimul inspiring, stimulating, in a non-challenging way. The Buddha said, the universe Anything in the universe is, is to be found in this body. This fathom long or whatever six-foot body. Everything in the universe is to be found here. It's not out there in another person, another place, another experience, another realm of existence, another galaxy. It isn't. It's here in this mind, in this body whatever there is to be known. Where do we have to go to look for it? What book do we have to read? What? It's right here. And we've got lots of tools for tuning in to the present moment. And it starts with what's happening right now? Oh, breathing, sitting, breathing, walking. But within each of those seemingly very mundane, very common experience. There's a universe yet to be discovered. So, happy discovery. <laughs> uh, it's to help get a little space around it so one doesn't see that it's uh, so solid or that it's mine. Uh, you know, so it's, you know, it's, it's just a bell. <laughs> it's just terror, you know. <laughs> it, 
It's supposed to help us open to each experience equally. Um, experience now or in the last few days where you would have a sense of what it would be like to, to walk with tigers. I mean, is there any, is there any way in which you would be... Right. I mean, usually we have both happen on a retreat. You know, sometimes being loving or caring with fear, uh, it's helpful to, instead of pushing yourself to experience that experience, sometimes it's helpful to go have a cup of tea. <laughs> you know, instead, I mean, and that, that helps give the strength, actually, in the space to uh, eventually be with it. But it, at another time, it might be really helpful to sit two hours with it. You know, I mean, it, either one is valid. I, I did sit, sit with it. I made myself sit with it. And mm-hmm. then I just I became exhausted. And, and I did some compassion metaphor. And that really, really helped. That, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That really helped a lot. And enabled me to go back. Usually you can tell if you need to do compassion because there's a, there'll be a resistance to the experience. So if we're resisting fear, for example, uh, and you try to bring your attention to the body and say, it's just fear, you know, so it's okay. But, you know, your, your body's like, no, I don't want, you know, your mind is recoiling from it. Then it's usually helpful not to push it, to back off, and to do some compassion in whatever way. There'll be other times where the, you might not feel the melting of the resistance right away, but you'll feel that sense, oh, I'm sort of interested in this, you know. I mean, it might not be, I'm totally, you know, I can't wait to experience this, but, <laughs> you know, there's a mild, <laughs> you know, receptivity to the experience. Then I would say to really you know, walk with tigers. The way that most of us that are teaching this course learn uh, metta practice was after we did a lot of vipassana practice with Sayadaw Upandita. So um, Sayadaw usually likes you to wait uh, until you do, until He's satisfied with your practice. <laughs> he he <laughs> he determines if he's you know wants you to do metta practice or not by how satisfied he he is with your vipassana practice. So it wasn't sort of a decision we made. <laughs> it was a decision he made, which is uh, choiceless. 
it's a nice way to have that happen. Uh, I think it's usually better to do the Vipassana practice, you know, for a while before one does the metta practice. If you want to know why, I'll have to think for a minute. <laughs> uh, in terms of the shortness of a lifetime and uh, the development of wisdom, the, the wisdom usually develops much quicker in the Vipassana practice. And if you think that you could die at any moment, uh, it's usually uh, more, I think, in terms of spiritual urgency, helpful to do the Vipassana practice. And we try to teach the metta practice and compassion, etc., in such a way to help people do the Vipassana practice so that we do the Vipassana practice in a way that is gentle and accepting and allowing. Uh, with, without the metta in the Vipassana practice, it tends to get dry or striving. Um, so we, we all really want people to learn the metta practice as we go along through the Vipassana practice, but not necessarily as a jhana practice. And so the metta practice can be done in such a way to develop the feeling of metta, the quality of metta, without developing the jhanas. And that's to us the most important thing. And then if you do it later as a jhana practice, I think it's like having uh, tofu chocolate mousse. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a dessert, you know, it's, <laughs> and it can be fun and interesting. <laughs> I found that, uh, there, <laughs> I found that there was a lot of understanding that I developed doing the metta practice. You know, so I don't see them as just black and white. I think you have to have enough wisdom to break down the barriers. So anytime you're doing the metta practice and you hit a barrier, you have to have understanding to break that barrier. So I think they tend to not be so necessarily black and white, but that when you're doing Vipassana, it's really helpful to do some metta at times. And when you're doing <laughs> uh, metta practice, it helps to have Vipassana so that you can break down the barrier. And eventually, you know, over time, they'll really come together, the metta mindfulness. they really come together, you know, in the, so if one is stuck, really stuck, to do a little metta practice, um, it's not an avoidance, uh, but a strengthening. You're right. Fill me in. <laughs> it was in when we were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you not clear about? Is it, what was it that you first said that you weren't quite clear about? 
Or not, you weren't complete about it. Yeah, it seems that whenever we talk about it. Yeah, okay, so it's, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. It's like it's like two sides of a coin, you know. So mostly, I see the development of the practice as uh, a gradual lowering of expectations. <laughs> uh, and that and that that that's how I feel. You know, a lot of wisdom, it's a lot of wisdom to just keep dropping them and dropping them and dropping them because they really prevent us from being in the present moment. And, and it does, any expectation, you know, is bound to lead to some kind of suffering. Uh, there's an other side to that, which is we do plan and we do set agendas and we do, uh, especially living in the world, we do have goals, you know, we, people do that. And it is important, like you say, to be able to do, set one, set something that we're going to do and then deal with what happens with that, you know, to deal with the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and it, again, it's like if you set anything up, <laughs> anything, and then especially have an expectation about it that it's going to yield something. Uh, you know, it's possible to set a goal and then just to have that idea, I'm just going to see what happens. That that doesn't really set us up for disappointment because there's this openness to experience whatever happens. Now that's an interesting way to make a commitment to something. Uh, and I think the practice actually teaches us how to do that. You know, so uh, that's what making a commitment to doing a three-month retreat is. And you know how many uh, times you've thought of going home. You know, <laughs> yeah, many, many times, you know, you make the commitment to do this, you know, and then a million times it comes up that we want to go home or that we want to extend it, for, you know, for another couple months, depending on how it's going. <laughs> and that's, that's an example of what you're talking about. You make the commitment and then you say, and I'm going to deal with whatever comes up. You know, that's, it's a good point. So, it's a nice way to get through this day. (laughs) Just see what comes up. Talking about, John, is changing our conditioning so that our happiness is not so dependent on external people, events, knowledge, etc. But rather our happiness comes from within and our relationship to whatever is outside that we're relating to, people, events, or whatever. And in one sense, 
there is a lot of shift from outer to inner in the course of practice. A lot, I think. Uh, All of us have discovered that it's our relationship to our bodies, our minds, our neighbors that determines happiness or not. And it's not the particular person. It's not the particular experience. It's not the particular knowledge or not the particular teacher. And so in that sense, there is a tremendous shift in how we come to understand our happiness and how we can affect it. However, that shift is still conditioned. The shift to internal um, happiness is still a very conditioned phenomena. What the Buddha talks about when he talks about the unconditioned is Nibbana, the experience of that which is beyond the mundane. And the mundane is everything we experience with the mind of the body. And there is a reality of the unconditioned that is beyond the mind-body experience. Whatever you can experience in the mind and the body is conditioned. No matter how subtle, how rare, or how refined the understanding or experience of it is, it's conditioned. And it's mundane in that sense. There is another reality, the unconditioned, beyond which the mind or the body, or that the mind or the body goes to. And it can be directly experienced and directly known. And the Buddha said, that's where liberation is. That's where liberation from conditioned mind lies. Have you experienced that at all? If so, can you put any words on it? The mental terrain to experience the unconditioned is well mapped. And when one walks the terrain, when one passes the landmark, so to speak, uh, one can know that they have seen the unconditioned. But it is the ineffable. It cannot be talked about. It cannot be spoken because all we can speak about is what we know with our minds and know through our senses. And so we can talk about sight, sound, smells, taste, thoughts, concepts, etc., etc. Nibbana, or the unconditioned, is beyond all that. There are no words for that. But one can know. One can directly know the unconditioned. Skillful, huh? <laughs> Question was about how to how to note every little event throughout the day, right? And 
as Sharon was talking about last night that when Saido was here the first time in 1984, he really put us through the paces. I mean, it was just a, a, a level of practice that nobody had quite seen before, where the continuity that was expected was every single moment from the time you wake up till the time you fall asleep. And there is nothing outside of that that you weren't to note as with as much determination, as much diligence, as much energy, persistence, as you do the breath when you sit. So that means every, every event during the day, every one. There's a couple that I used specifically to help bring me back over and over again. One is every time you get to a door and reach for the handle. Note the intention before reaching. All of the sensations of reaching and touching. The intention to turn the knob before you turn it. The experience of turning it, feeling the twisting in the arm, the movement of the arm. The intention to pull the door or push the door, and then the pushing. If we just did that, every time we got to a door, your door or to the office or to your room or to go outside, if you did that, just that much more in a day, you would find your mindfulness jumped considerably. However, there's a lot more than that going on during the day. And so if you add, after you practice that for a week, if you add every time you put on or take off your sandals, the intention to kick it off, and what that feels like, and then the intention to kick off the other one, what that feels like. And when you come out of the hall and you step to your sandals, the intention to put one on and to lift, and to notice every movement of the leg lifting and putting it into the sandal. You can see the day slows down really quickly. The third one that I used quite skillfully here was every time I walked by the bulletin board. You know that feeling that goes through your mind every time you walk by? Maybe there's a note for me. Has that been noted yet? And so we turn to look. Did we note the intention to turn to look? Did we notice seeing? Did we notice, oh boy, there's a note for me? Did we notice the intention to reach for the note? To touch the pin? The intention to pull the pin? This is, the, this is what is expected, as a matter of fact, when you practice with Upandita. That's No, no, just, that's just wondering. That's wondering. Yeah. Uh, if you can't note your experience with only one word, then you're probably commenting somehow. It's just a one-word identifying tag of what's happening. Oh, wondering, intending, seeing, joy, intending, reaching, Touching, intending, pulling, intending, lowering, 
intending, opening, intending, lifting, intending, reading. Uh oh. Disgust, anger, aversion, intending, crumpling. Seeing, seeing, planning, 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 intending, throwing away. It's hard to do all that immediately because you get tight. You get really tight and you get judgmental. As soon as you find yourself slipping in your will, you say, God, I can't do this. And you get tighter. That's not the way, obviously. It's just whatever level of noting and practice you're doing now, increase just a little bit. Just add one thing to the day. Doorknobs, sandals, notes, brushing your teeth, whatever it is. Every time your hands touch water. There's so much that we miss every day. We just forget. We just space out. And so that's how we can really... And it, like Sharon said, in, in theory, it sounds horrendous. It's just something like... I don't want to do that. That's just I'm going to be exhausted. That's just your mind chattering. In fact, that degree of care, precision, and noting brings tremendous energy to the mind. Tremendous. The mind just brightens up and lightens up and just starts noticing things that you've been living with and never noticed. And it just gets extremely light and pliable and adaptable and fast. So is this something that you continue on out in the world and you leave always ready? <laughs> Me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> As much as possible, but, but obviously not with that degree of continuity. Of course not. I would never have gotten here. <laughs> I'd still be getting on the plane. <laughs> so, But what happens is that as we pay attention for a month or two or three, the frequency of noting picks up dramatically. And we notice areas of our life that we've lived unconsciously. That, as we bring light and consciousness to those areas of our life, it's more quickly recognized in our general life outside of retreat, subsequent to the retreat, generally. I find that, you know, my mind is just a lot more aware and lights up and is knowledgeable much more frequently in areas of my life that I didn't even know I had a life prior to practice. Was there another question? There was something. It's in Burma.
that, uh, uh, you know, did, tried, actually what it is, they, they actually read the Buddha's original words and tried it and found that it wasn't exactly as it had been being taught in the monasteries. And so they just decided to follow their own intuition and teach or to practice and to teach what they discovered. And then Mahasi Sayadaw was a a student of the first monk. And uh, Mahasi Sayadaw, when he practiced, he went to this teacher and the teacher told him, he says, because Mahasi Sayadaw was a, a scholar and a very good scholar, one of the best in Burma at the back in the 20s or 30s or something. And this monk said, you know, the, you know what the Buddha said, just do it. And so he did. And, you know, the Buddha says, oh, Anapanasati, watch your breath here, and then XYZ happens. Well, Mahasi found that after a short while, the sensations of experience here at the nostrils became so subtle that he couldn't feel them. And his mind would drift off into conceptual thought. But there were still very clear physical sensations in the abdomen. So he said, all right, well, I'll watch there. I'll take my mind to a subtler level of perception by watching what is clearer and more distinct. And so that's how we got the primary object as the breath and the abdomen rather than the nostrils. And it's textually, or it's footnoted in the Buddha's teaching, of course, from the Buddha's teaching that that's a perfectly fine object for attention, for gaining insight, concentration and insight. And Mahasi Sayadaw had the compassion and the tremendous wisdom to say, hey, look, if monks can do this, or monks and nuns, lay people can do it too. And so he started a meditation center for lay people. And it is directly from that, or that's where Manindra went to practice, Joseph practiced with Manindra, and welcome to IMS. But prior to that time, meditation centers, no. Monasteries for monks and nuns, yes. Lay people, you can do dana. Maybe you can be born in good opportunities and become a monk or nun later. We're very lucky. We're very fortunate to have the opportunity. Oh, there's one note. Actually, I had two notes. One, I'll have to wait. Um, Evidently, there's still some singing and whistling and... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.